This episode was actually brought to you by LuxMarket.com. to the very next episode of the Second Floor Podcast. This is where we talk about how to survive, how to thrive, and keep the good vibes alive. alive. I'm here with my boy, <laughs> my best friend, Daniel Zarr. Danny is somebody I've wanted to bring on the podcast for a very long time now. And today we're gonna to talk about Danny's journey in uh, cultivating that, that new generational mindset in bringing uh, his perspective as a financial manager for Car West in his very own family business. And Danny's family runs a very successful dealership here outside of Edmonton in Leduc, Alberta. So for anybody out there who needs a brand new vehicle, new used vehicle, anything along the lines, anything along the lines of vehicles, you go to my boy Danny Zarr here. And today we're going to kind of talk about what that looks like when you're pretty much taking over and, and bringing new initiatives into your family business. We're also going to talk about, you know, what makes a really good friendship and everything else in between. I mean, I could feel like I could talk to Danny any day of the week. This guy will, will call me pretty much every single day and we'll shoot the shit. So pretty excited to bring him on the podcast and bring knowledge to you guys. And let's jump into it. Awesome. What's up, Danny? Thank you. For How you doing, time. Kenny? I'm good, Thanks man. for having me, man. No problem, man. I'm super I, excited. I want to start us off by asking you really, give us a background of, of your experience with Car West. Like, is that something where, you know, your mom and dad had you working in at a very young age? Or did you kind of just get mixed into it right after you graduated university? Well, that's a great question. So Car West was founded about five, six years ago by uh, my mom, my dad, and Nick. So Nick, my older brother, he spearheaded this organization uh, along the lines with my father and my mother. So uh, when they first opened the doors, I was still in university. I think I was just actually graduating high school at that point. So I had limited experience in the car business. Uh, my parents had been in the business for about 30 years at that point. Uh, my dad in particular, he was, you know, he's been a wholesaler. So his main gig is selling uh, volume vehicles to many of the dealerships here in Alberta and Western Canada. So he figured why not open up his own dealership with the same inventory he's been selling to all these franchise dealers. And that's what he did. So they found uh, a lucrative spot in Leduc, kind of on dealership row on Sparrow Drive. Uh, Leduc's a small town, about 30,000 people, but plenty of, plenty of dealerships there. So uh, yeah, we got the opportunity to, to purchase that land and, and that building. And then, uh, yeah, they kind of ran with it. And I was, I was there in the rudimentary stages helping out and kind of assisting, giving a hand here and there. But I wasn't doing anything along the lines of selling. I, I wasn't a finance manager at that point. Uh, but to give you a little clear background of how I got in the business, I always figured, I mean, I'm an extroverted person. I like to talk to people. I figured I would probably dabble in the business a little bit just because my family had set up the resources for me. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, once I graduated high school, my parents expected me to go to university straight away. Yeah. But I really wanted to travel, as you know. So I kind of had this uh, dilemma where I didn't want to go to university right away. I knew it was in my plans, but I wanted to travel, make some money, and kind of experience the real world. So I, uh, I applied to Grant McCune, as we see it just, just down the road it's here. Right there. <laughs> it's right there. Uh, knowing that I was not going to get approved for the business program because I was missing one of my core 30 courses from, uh, from high school. And essentially, I applied. I spent the $100 on the application process. I took it to my parents, and I said, hey, unfortunately, I didn't get in. And so that gave me that threshold to act like I was going to do bio 30 and modules. 
uh, whilst not being in school. So <laughs> as soon as I graduated high school, I turned 18 and I jumped in the business. I uh, luckily got an opportunity selling cars in Leduc at a different dealership by the name of LA Mazda. And I learned how to make a dollar. Um, I learned about my own vulnerabilities and insecurities yeah. in the business world. And it gave me some very valuable you know, lessons. And uh, I spent eight months there and I really harvested my selling attributes and I kind of put everything together and I learned plenty of life lessons. And uh, at that point, I felt like it was time to go to school. So I enrolled at uh, McEwen University. I got accepted this time and uh, yeah, my journey started there. So in between summers at McEwen University, I sold cars at a couple different dealerships. Uh, the first being LA Mazda, the second being River City Hyundai. And then uh, the third being a place in St. Albert called Insta Auto Solutions. And they gave me my first opportunity to really learn the finance game. So I had some very valuable experience before I went to my parents' shop and yeah. implemented what I had known. So That's neat. What was something you feel like, Danny, that because you've gotten so much experience with so many different dealerships, right? Especially while you were in university, as you were kind of growing into a younger man. What was, what was some of the things you felt like all of them really weren't doing, or maybe one or the other weren't doing, that you're going to bring into Car West. Because I understand you're a recent graduate, you're now financial manager for Car West, and, and you're still starting to build, build your way up into the company and learn more from your own experience. What is something that you saw that wasn't happening that you want to implement? That's a great question. So one gap I've seen in the car industry is that employees are not really taken care of. Um, you're expected to work 12-hour days on a commission basis. Yeah, so if, yeah, if you're not there, you're not making money. And they pump that into your brain. So if you're not selling cars, it can be a very toxic environment, right? You're there for 12 hours a day, you're not making any money, and then your peers are killing it. All and you're kind of like, right? it's all commission, right? So uh, what I want to implement at Car West is essentially building an atmosphere where employees have the flexibility to come in, come out when they want, um, whilst being happy, whilst being excited to be there. So. Uh, that's the biggest thing, having that relationship with my employees yeah. uh, and, and allowing them to have that flexibility of leaving work when they feel like it Absolutely. and not having that hierarchical system of you need to be here on time, you need to be here for 12 hours a day, yeah. you need to have discipline. I definitely expect that out of people that work with us and I expect that out of myself. So uh, that's one thing that I want to implement uh, down the road. So That's a very neat thing actually when you think about just sales in general, right? I, I've learned that from my own experience. There's there's a one day you feel like you can be there for 16 hours, yeah. right? Then there's other days where you don't even want to be in. You mm -hmm. can't even remotely feel comfortable or, or feel confident enough to hold down a conversation that you were able to yesterday, right? And I think it's because maybe something happened externally in your life or maybe you're just, you're downright sick and it's not the right attitude, right? It's pretty neat to know that you're, you're creating a work culture where you're allowing employees to to come in as they may. I mean, not, not to the point where like, hey, I'm gonna take two weeks off, like, <laughs> don't, don't bother, <laughs> I'm not gonna come in. Yeah. Obviously, they have to put food on the table, but that that definitely comes from a good place I find. What is something you, you were surprised by? You know, like, I find at that time, you were already saying that you went in and your parents and your brother have already started Car West at that time. What is something maybe that, that turned you back and you didn't expect it to happen? working at a dealership, uh, the story or just the way they, they ran themselves. Yeah, I know. My first experience jumping in the car business is, you know, everybody wants to make a dollar quickly, right? I figured being very enthusiastic in high school and growing up that 
I was going to be a millionaire and it's going to happen right away. And I think that's a lot of our dreams, right? Yeah, yeah. And then it comes to fruition and you realize that you've got to put in a lot of hours. You've got to work. So it might be counterintuitive with me saying, hey, like you have a flexible budget, but you have to be effective. Uh, it's, it's really hard to, to build a foundation. And that's why I really appreciate my family. And I know you can relate with your family business, Laser Shear. Yeah. Uh, your parents really solidified a strong foundation. Yeah. And uh, that takes years and years and years. So luckily I have the resources uh, to kind of expand the business. So I, I definitely realized the amount of effort it takes to not, not only make a dollar, but to really, create formidable, formidable relationships with people. Yeah. So I think that's the most important thing. Um, at the end of the day, I'm not really selling cars. I mean, that is a service we provide, but it's more so I'm selling the dealership, I'm selling the reputation, I'm selling the customer service, and I'm selling myself. I love that. So it, it really is that, right? We're, we're almost, we're like relationship managers as mm. like executive sales, like people are finance managers. You, you have to be really good at building a relationship. Like yes. those walls have to be down you have to give a little piece to yourself, they have to give a piece back, you have certain questions, right? So if you could tell us a time, or even just in general, like what does that conversation look like? Because I'm sure a lot of people out there know, when you're a salesperson or when you're even a car sales man or woman, you pick up that phone, you're doing a lot of cold calling, right? Yeah. I know you have some amazing cold calling, let's call it secrets, because I'm sure <laughs> if anyone knew this, you can implement it. But yeah. really that's what this is all about. If you're willing to share, Danny, uh, what that conversation looks like when you pick up that phone, it's a lead, cold or hot, whatever it is, uh, you damn right know that maybe one day they're gonna need a new car. They, they're a prospect. And, and what does that phone call look like? How does that conversation sound? Just so people can get an idea of how you build those relationships. Yeah, that's a good question. It's uh, very adaptable. So it depends on who's on the other line of the phone. And I like the phone because it's personality speaking. I don't see you, you don't see me. So it's, it's, it's basically our personality and our voices, okay, right? So I don't go into calling a customer, whether it's a cold call or whether it's a prospect, yeah. knowing that they're a potential customer. I, I try to build value in what I have and how I could help them, how, how I could potentially save them money or get them into a nicer rod or perhaps even lower their interest rate. So I explain how I can benefit them, not in a intrusive fashion, but uh, very, in a helpful manner, I guess you could say. And uh, it goes from there, right? If I if they want to continue with perhaps a credit application or if they have more questions down the road or perhaps downright they're not interested. I'll tell them, you know, perhaps you know somebody in the market looking for a vehicle. I would love to send you a check of $500 at a gratitude. So uh, it's a service we provide. It's the personality and culture behind the family business. Uh, so there's that fine line between having a corporate structure and looking at customers as a number and having that family business. So you always want to keep that culture as being that small business mentality, yeah. but you definitely want to grow at the same time. So it's, yeah. it's about the challenge I find at least is about maintaining that culture yeah. of being family orientated, yeah. but growing at the same time and having an ever growing, you know, customer base and employee base that live off that culture and that want to come back. So oh, exactly. it's a, it's definitely a delicate balance between balancing the corporate structure and having that family mentality. So that's yeah. the challenge I'm working with now. No, of course, because it's almost like you're trying to build it up to, to what it is right now in a bigger fashion, yeah, trying to not feel like it's a corporate culture. Yeah. Right? So yeah. keeping that like family business vibe to it, right? It's super neat. I want to ask you, I know there's a, there's a lot of influencers people have in anything, right? You find mentors, you find coaches, you find maybe that senior salesperson that you really aspire to. Did, did you have that or do you feel like you need that in car sales? And, and what I mean is I pitch automatically like, 
does that person selling cars need to buy Grant Cardone's like 10x sales model? Which to some people, like that, that must be money. Maybe they didn't go get a college education. They are somebody who find value in car sales. They, they get to learn, or even just any sales in general, what the process looks like. So do you see value in someone learning about that or yourself? And yeah. Where did you get that sales knowledge from? Was Definitely. Like your dad sitting down with you, the perks of having a family business and, and him telling you, Danny, like this is how you should sell. Or was it somebody who you aspired to? Uh, it was it was kind of an incremental growth period for me from when I turned 18 to where I'm at now. So yeah. there's many people that influenced me, my friends, my peer group, you, yeah. you've definitely influenced me. So it's hard to categorize who's influenced me the most, yeah, but uh, coming from a family of entrepreneurs, especially my father and my mother, they had probably the most influence on me, but I have to give it up to my first sales managers that taught me the most, right? They really gave me that structure and foundation. Whereas my dad for the past 30 years would come into the house. He'd kind of leave work behind. He wouldn't, elaborate on what he did too much it was kind of exciting seeing him drive a new car to you know the parking lot every day or the coming in the driveway and i I used to get excited about that but he didn't really dive into the process of selling because he's uh more so on the wholesale side of things and it's a little different the game there is structured different so uh just it was a cocktail and arraignment of different people just Mm -hmm. having some influence on my life and i would take small things from each person right because like, you know, in fighting, for example, you may see something that Conor McGregor does that you want to implement in your game, but you're not Conor McGregor, right? Yeah. You're Kenny Bullar. So you want to implement what he does in your own skill and fashion level, right? Yeah. So that's what I've done. I've taken little things from people who've influenced me, and I've yeah. tried to implement them in my own strategy. And uh, I, I try to take small little tips and pieces, but the biggest thing for me is listening. Yeah. I've, uh, I like to talk a lot. Growing up, I used to like to talk. I think that's why me and you connected. We're very similar in that yeah, fashion. Yeah. But I find, I think the biggest skill nowadays is simply listening. So that's something that I've been working on. And over the past five years, it's helped me tremendously in this yeah. in this career path. So. Why do you say that, bro? Like, I find, even for me, starting this podcast has been, like, the biggest breakthrough in me shutting up and just listening. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because, man, I, I tell you, I, I'll talk all day. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll keep yapping. I'll keep talking about my day. And it allows me to really figure out what people are thinking and what they choose to talk about yeah, right? no kidding. And, and, and then just leading it in the direction that they go right and I feel like a lot of that for me anyway Danny comes from being the youngest in my family right mm. like me being yeah I don't have family of five siblings but I have family of you know me and an older brother but I find if you, if you can agree on this is when you're the younger one you almost feel like you're that much more needing to prove yourself yeah right like there's like this edge to you where no matter how much older you get you're the baby of the family right so you, you feel this level of, okay, two things. For me, I felt like I needed to mature faster, but that was in my own head. You know, I, I feel like, oh, I have to grow up fast to, to win the respect, which entirely honestly isn't true. But second, so more so of like, okay, well, what can I do or what can I say and how can I frame it to earn that respect? Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. So that's where that comes from because for me, when I feel like I'm like the, the, the little brother or like it's, it's like that frame of reference is coming from the, the little one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So I want to know what does do you relate being the younger one? Because I know Julie, she's younger than you, but being like the youngest of the boys. Yeah. What did that look like for you? Uh, it was interesting actually because the family dynamic in my household growing up was my oldest brother, Nick. So my parents had a lot of pressure on him, whether it was taking care of the kids, right? Taking care of us, his yeah, younger brothers, dad, his younger yeah. siblings. Yeah, essentially. Um, just having all the expectations of him doing really well in school and he had to be in the honors program and coming from like a traditional Lebanese family in a sense. 
there's a lot of pressure on him. And then it trickled down, right? So then you had Ty, the second oldest, who kind of, in a sense, was a black sheep. He knew what he wanted to do with his life, and it was a lot different than what my parents expected out of him. Yeah. And so my parents gave him that, that freedom, but there was a lot of resistance initially when he was a teenager. And then my third, uh, well, yeah, the third oldest brother, I guess you can say, is Marcel, and he has autism. So that took a lot of time and resources from my mother and my father. They really had to allocate time towards him wow. and his development phases and just treating autism, right? And making sure he had the proper resources to live a good life and then there was me so i have three older brothers and then me and i was in this weird threshold because i have a younger sister as well and yeah. she's the only girl in the family she's the youngest so she garnishes a lot of attention growing up so yeah. i was in that weird threshold where my parents definitely focused on me and they gave me a lot of attention but i was seeking attention yeah, i was seeking approval more. i was which seeking is, more which is fair i think it's very fair given the family dynamic yeah, and, and it gave me actually, I, I really liked it because I learned a lot from my, from Nick's uh, experience with my parents and how he dealt with my parents and then Ty's experience with my parents and then Marcel's experience with my parents. Oh, yeah, wow. And it gave me some freedom because my parents were not, they didn't have the, the heavy rule on me like they did with Nick when he was growing up. So I had a lot of freedom and I had the ability to you know, play sports. I played hockey growing up and my, my family loved sports, especially Nick. So me and him connected really well and I was in that team atmosphere. So... I had a lot of freedom growing up, and uh, I think that gave me the ability to kind of learn from different people and learn little things from everybody, right, that I that I'd spoke to. So being in that family dynamic of being the youngest boy, I love it. I think it's amazing, right, because I, I had so much freedom yeah, no, at the end of the day. I had so much freedom. If you, could, if you could put it down this way, like, if you including your parents and all your siblings, what was something from someone that was one of those biggest life lessons that you learned? Oh, that's if, a great if you question. Want to relate it to because uh, the, the word that really stuck out for me is the attention-seeking part, right? Yeah. Where it's like you knew very well that you were at a point in your life, and like, okay, do I seek more? Do I not seek more? But you step back, and I don't know what age that is. This is very mature of you to be like, okay, well, I understand that the level of attention I get is the right amount, but I also know that my parents are giving it to so many other siblings in so many different contexts. Yeah. Especially with your brother having autism, right? Like, I want to know if. There was a certain age, and if you could recall what that age was when you realized it, but also if there's, you know, in conjunction with that, what was a life lesson you learned from either one of your siblings or your parents? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So I think the biggest transition in my life was junior high to high school, like at least in my adolescent life, right? Uh, from grade nine to grade 10 was the, probably the biggest difference. I really yeah. grew up in that sense. And a lot of that was because of my family, of course, but the biggest thing was the change of environment. I was going into a a lot more of a mature environment and plus I just started boxing yeah. at the end of grade 9 going into grade 10 so it gave me that discipline that I needed and I had a, a source to just dump my energy into right like I was exhausted after boxing so I think uh, going back to it boxing really changed my life in that atmosphere because nice. I became really disciplined and uh, going back to what my parents had taught me especially my dad was be honest be disciplined and that's something that most ethnic families share Absolutely. right and uh it was always a word to me, right? I was, I was always honest growing up. I was always disciplined. Not so much disciplined, actually. I was an attention seeker. I like yeah, yeah. to be loud and entertaining, right? <laughs> uh, but when, when, I went, when my parents enrolled me in boxing or I enrolled myself and my parents drove me there and paid for it and stuff, I really understood the term of being disciplined. And that's where I implemented it for the first time. And yeah. So just the conjunction of all those variables coming into play in grade 10, 
really uh, solidified, I think, where I wanted to be in life and how I can manifest the things I wanted to manifest. Yeah. So I really wanted to be a boxing star and I really dedicated all my energy into training. Yeah. And luckily, that's how me and you met, actually, initially, right? So, um, yeah, just, just that transition from grade 9 to 10, having the ability to pursue what I wanted to pursue. I played hockey. I quit hockey in grade 9 to pursue boxing, actually. Oh, wow. And I, I focused all my attention into boxing. Although I wanted to, you know, play football in grade 10 because the high school football team, I, uh, I really just focused on one thing and it was boxing. So in high school, I didn't party much. I didn't drink, you know. I, I didn't do any of these things that were classified as the norm because I wanted to be different. And uh, that changed my life in many different ways. And it taught me the fundamental principles of how to be successful. I'm still working on it, right? And whether it's being a boxer, or being a boxer trainer, or just uh, being a successful entrepreneur, yeah. uh, I, I learned the basis from that in conjunction with my parents and teaching me these things. You know what? You talk a lot about like building that foundation right early on. So it's like in a way at that pinnacle moment of life where you're trying to figure yourself out. Boxing was that foundation for you to learn how to yeah. be disciplined, right? And I'm telling you, man. Like I remember when when I first made that transition to Hayabusa. I always, on my end of things, felt like even outside of my family, I was a young blood of like doing MMA with my brother, with the team, trying to feel like I wanted to fit in, right? Like I remember we had like an official fight team at one of the gyms we were at, and it, it, it pissed me off so much, bro, because I wanted to feel like I was a part of the team, and the only symbolic way to feel like I was was getting a fight team t-shirt, <laughs> right? Like it was being able to have that shirt that yeah. says it. Every single pro fighter and amateur fighter got one. Then there was me, the guy who's in with these guys every evening training. The guy who's like, you know, shaking, shaking leather off with these guys sparring. <laughs> like, I'm in there. Yeah. I'm in the showers. I'm also crying like every week. So I was like, oh man, my leg, it hurts so badly. <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm going to be a fighter one day, right? Like, I was yeah. like, you know, letting the tears go down in the shower. And man, I just remember, I was like, I'm going to get that shirt one day. Never did, right? Oh, but man. It was because I think they viewed me as, oh, he's too young. Like, what are we going to do? Give him a fight team starting fighting. So I, as I got older, I understood it. But I always thought at that time, it's funny when you're so young, you feel like you're the only one. Like, you almost feel entitled because I got 15 like, <laughs> doing this MMA stuff. And like, no one's doing it. Like, I want that shirt. So we switched gyms. And then I remember, it was crazy. It was mind-blowing to me. But it was actually motivating. I do the boxing class, and I remember our coach at that time, he would always have you demonstrate with him. And as you know, that's like a rite of passage in the martial I was so world. excited like, about that. you're the guy demonstrating <laughs> with the coach, like, you know what you're doing. Yeah. Right? So I remember, like, he kept choosing you, and for over two weeks, I kept thinking, I'm like, man, that guy's, he's young. Like, he's good, and he's young. And, like, he might be my age. And, like, <laughs> like 15 year old kid, he's like, man, that's pretty cool. Like, I'll, 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 I'm going to spar him. Like, I never had somebody who's, like, that young as me who's doing this. And then I talked to Garrett, talked to you, and I remember very, very vividly. I remember us being like, okay, yeah, like, let's bar. And then Garrett's like, yeah, I want Denny, I want Kenny in the cage. And then I was like, okay, here we go. And it was like, man, lightning struck. Because I bet you, you, I want to know where your mindset was. Because my mind was like, okay, I'm going up against the other young blood. Like, shit. Like, here we go. Like, let's see what he's got, right? And when you're that much younger, already, for people who should know, when you're sparring, you don't want to, like, kick the guy's head off. Right, like you're not doing that. You don't want to like hurt him. So I knew already. Like I was like, "Kid, like I know he's young." Are you sure? Because I think no balls to the yeah. ball. Yeah. Like, no so we touched gloves, man. Man, like it was so freaking cool to just see how good you were at the age you were at, 
and that was you fully focusing on boxing and then us being able to just exchange punches back and forth and it, like it felt like Goku and Vegeta man like I swear that's what it felt like and that's what made me even more inclined to continue doing what I was doing because 15 year old Kenny at that time was like there was another fit like you were what like probably a year younger than me like 14 turning 15 and I was like there's another young blood out there who's trying to get it and that would that's what made me more inclined to keep training because I saw like another person to me who honestly I'm so blessed like since then we our friendship has grown even more so because that was like we can agree that was a very gym friendship yeah we were young, initially we saw each other yeah. at the gym then things turned around we saw each other university but I agree with you man like being able to like one experience fighting together but not only also seeing another young person do what you're doing and actually like for you to have several amateur fights along the way super cool that's cool yeah I have uh, my recollection of the story goes so I'm in the gym, you know, I felt like I was a cool young prodigy of Gareth Jones, my first instructor, and he taught me a lot. Yeah. He really did. He, he built a great foundation, at least for my boxing, right? Um, so I'm in the gym one day, and I'm, I'm training every day. I'm only there two days a week, Tuesday and Thursdays, high boosted schedule. But every day I'm not there. I'm at the gym running miles. I'm shadow boxing. I'm looking at Mayweather videos. I'm just trying to harness my game because eventually I want to fight. And at that point, I was probably doing it for six, seven months. Very green, but I'm trying to learn fast. I really wanted to get good at this. So I'm in the gym one day, and sure enough, I see two big brown guys walk in. <laughs> KB Bullar, 6'4". Kenny Bullar, like 6'1". Kenny doesn't look very innocent. Like, now he does, but at this point, Kenny was like this big kid, came in real macho, Pablo Escobar-like. <laughs> you know, he, he knew he had to make a name for himself in this new gym. So he walks in, and my heart starts pumping out of my chest right away. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit, what the fuck's going to happen here? So sure enough, I know Gareth Jones, and Gareth Jones would push me. These guys step in. I'm like, they must be pro fighters. They're probably 25 years old, coming from India. <laughs> Who, are these guys? Who are these guys? They're huge. And I had an issue with big guys. I was like 150 pounds, 5'7". That was my biggest flaw. I was scared of the big guys. So sure enough, Kenny walks in. KB walks in. I don't even say hi. I have my gloves on my hands already at this point. Gareth says, hey, Kenny, KB, wrap up. You're sparring. I knew they were relating to me, right? At that point, Gareth's like, yo, Danny, get in there with, with Kenny. <laughs> we didn't even talk, eh? Didn't even talk. Didn't even say a word. First time I'd seen him, he was uh, another face, an opponent at the gym. I thought he might have been there for a brief week or so. Sure enough, uh, we touched gloves, and then we went at it. And uh, I was nervous, right, because Kenny was a big boy. He wanted to prove himself at the gym. I wanted to solidify my position as Gareth's little prodigy. <laughs> so we went at it, and then uh, sure enough, I stayed in there, and then KB comes in. And I was more frightened than KB, right? Like, I was, yeah. this dude, 6'4", I was really scared. But KB was very controlled. KB, yeah. KB knew he was fighting a guy that was 5'7", right? So KB had a little bit more experience than both of us combined. So uh, KB was very controlled. And at the end of the day, I, I went and introduced myself. And then we got to know each other. And then from there, our relationship ended up blossoming, which was a cool thing. That was insane. But, yeah, you definitely pushed me. Because I felt like I was at a comfort level where... I was 14, 15 years old. I felt like I was this cool kid who was doing really well in the boxing class. Yeah. And then here comes this young stud who's you know a similar age as me. And yeah. I find out after I spar him that he's 15 years old and I'm mind blown because he looks like he's 25. And uh, you, you pushed me. Yeah, you pushed me a lot. And so yeah. I think we, that was probably like the foundation of our relationship yeah. because we pushed each other, right? We wanted to grow together. And you, had to, you held me accountable in a weird way and I held you accountable, so. I think our love for the sport even, like it's, it's fair to say, had we not have been to the same gym together, I don't think I don't think this friendship would exist. I don't right? think so either. Yeah. Only because I feel like that's what 
I think after a couple of years of not speaking with one another, I think it was just because we we both switched to like, you know, you went to another gym to keep growing in your boxing skills at that time. And then, you know, we lost contact until we went to the same school. Yeah. Until we yeah. were at McEwen. Yeah. And we were like, oh, yo, like, yeah, good times. <laughs> what happened? And then from there, we hit it off. And then we went to Europe the very next, like, summer after that. So it's crazy, man. Just to, see, just to kind of Google, look back at it all, right? I want to know, though, like, when you were that young and you made all those sacrifices, uh, we'll call them sacrifices, you know, the, the no drinking and, the, the, you know, like, staying sharp, not partying that much. And you were really fighting, you know, at that level of boxing, going to do fights, were you, like, do you look back at that now and go, oh, I regret not going to all those parties? Or like, was it this that much easier to say no to it because you had a fight like that? I mean, I, I still went to the parties, but I was the DD. <laughs> so I still love it. I, I went to the parties and I was myself, right? Yeah. Everybody was getting kind of fucked up and I was sober. But everybody came to me like, yo, you're smashed, dude. I'm like, <laughs> I just picked up on the vibes, right? I know you're really good at that, too, yeah. so you can relate. But just no. Just drinking your hand really water. But, but ice yeah, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I always had fun. a drink in my hand. It was water, though. So, yeah, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I don't, I don't regret any of the sacrifices I yeah, made because sure. now, I mean, I understood at a young age what a sacrifice was. Right? Yeah. So I held myself accountable. I mean, I, yeah. I, I was disciplined. I wanted to do well. I wanted to succeed. And How many fights did you have? Ah, uh, 15 to 20. Yeah, wow. in between 15 to 20. Okay. I was really active for about two years. Yeah. yeah. So once I left Hayabusa, because Hayabusa, I couldn't fight there. I didn't have a boxing license yeah. at that time. So I left and I went to a full-time boxing gym. And as soon as I got there, within, I think, three or four weeks of being there, I fought. And then I fought two weeks later and then I fought again and fought again. So wow. I really tested myself. Listen, second floor listeners, fans, we have some news for you guys. You shopped around for everyone else. Now it's time to shop for yourself. Get that blazer you've been waiting on, gentlemen. Maybe get a couple of ties to refresh your wardrobe. Or even get a fresh pair of jeans. Whether you're looking for Xenia, Montclair, or Naked and Famous, Lux Market has you covered. With prices 50 to 90% off retail, means that even though you bought for others, and the wallet's looking slim, you can afford to splurge on yourself. Head on over to luxmarket.com. That's L-U-X-M-R-K-T.com now to shop the finest menswear brands. Available 24 hours a day, shipping anywhere in Canada and the United States of America. Easy shopping, fast shipping, and hassle-free returns. L-U-X. M R K T dot com. What made you stop? Because I know you reached a point where, uh, you know, you no longer had more fights after the, the 20 years old fight to get. Why wasn't there another one out of the checklist? What happened? Um, I had a dream of pursuing the Olympics, and unfortunately, it, uh, it didn't blossom to reality. So I fought in the Western Canadian Olympic National Qualifiers, I guess you could say. And, I fought a guy from Ontario and, you know, he was a big, tall, 6'4 guy. And it was my last fight. It was about three and a half years ago. Um, and essentially, I lost a split decision. And I was, I felt like that was my dream being taken away from me. And at that point, I was in a weird phase where... Your first loss? It wasn't my first loss, no. But it was uh, probably the most important loss in my, in my amateur career, I guess you can say. Yeah. Uh, it was heartbreaking. I mean, I was, I was really distraught that I felt like my dream had left. And I didn't want to wait another four to seven years between you know, between Olympics. 
because uh, that was my dream. And it got to a point where, you know, you have to make a decision. I, I say it all the time, like, basketball is a game, hockey's a game, fighting's not a game. You can't play it, right? There's some severe consequences of fighting and taking shots to the head and losing. And for me, it's when I have my balls in a court, I put all my marbles into one activity. Like, I really try to blossom and, and succeed in one thing that I'm doing. And so I really focused on boxing for a long time. I got to a point where I had to make a decision on whether I wanted to pursue it as a career. And uh, I had to balance my options out. And so I had plenty of opportunities and, and resources from my family business and from just having an entrepreneurial spirit and yeah. wanting to grow business. Um, at the same time, I wanted to succeed as a fighter. And so knowing that I wanted to go to university and, and grow as a businessman, I had to make a decision. And so luckily, I'm still in the game. I'm, I'm still training. Yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of live vicariously through KB. He's That's killing the game. So I'm yeah. still right there by his side when he fights. Definitely. And so I'm still in the game and I'm training people now. So I love this sport, but I uh, haven't fought in three and a half years. And I really had to make that decision and prioritize what I wanted to do with my life. Because yeah. I didn't want to spar and fight as a hobby, right? Like, I have to give it 100%. I know you can relate with that. Yeah, you're getting punched in the fucking face. Try not to, but yeah, that's a consequence of doing what we do. So there's yeah. a lot of risk behind that. No, I absolutely agree, man. I, there's no other person you could share this with who really understands what that feels like, right? Because it's a, it's a dilemma between, you know, you love a sport so much. You've been doing it for a good amount of years of your life. And you're like, okay, am I willing to just do this right now? But then there's this whole other side of you. Right, you got you got people telling you, man, Danny, I've never seen anyone with your personality. You know, like you could you could sell anyone anything, right? With the, with any vehicle of your choice, or you look at the family business and how you could grow it. Because, like you said, there's that entrepreneurial vibe to you. There's that side that you feel like uh, is a side you like, and you could definitely you could still make a big difference. And I love how you chose that part of you, but you also didn't let the love for boxing fade. You turned it into you know improving. Uh, someone's skills in it, such as KB, who's someone you get to go, uh, you know, ringside with and see him, corner him, and, and be a part of his experience. And that, that vicarious effect helps a lot, right? So even for me, man, when I broke my jaw for the first time, I had to decide, I think for a long time, I think it took me five years to come to terms with, okay, I'm most likely not going to go back into the cage, right? It went from, I'll be back, kept telling myself that, to, dude, come on, it's been five years. Like, yeah. are you going back, you're not. Like, telling myself that. Like, fighting those own battles in my head. But I think when you can verbalize that, okay, you get older, clearly, right? You get into your 20s and you're like, hey, like, I got I to gotta figure out what I'm going to do with my life. What's the purpose? And until you figure that out is when you realize that it's that much easier to, to just you kind of put a blanket over that past dream years. Yeah. Right? And it's like, I want to know, like, the psychological effect. Like, did you feel like even after that last fight, like, would you be more inclined to watch fights? Did you feel like you no longer even wanted to watch oh. boxing related? Because I'll be honest, this is... This isn't a conversation that's new to some of our reviewers or even me asking this question. Um, I've, I've talked about this with some athletes that have been on the show, but it just, I, I want I want it to bring light to it, where it's like, man, even for me, I didn't, I didn't want to look at watch UFC for quite some time. Yeah. One was because I didn't want to see someone, like, get their face hit, and then be like, ooh, it brings me back to that. And two, I was like, oh, well, I kind of felt, like, jealous. Yeah. I was like, I, yeah. I don't want to see other people fight and get their hand raised when, like, that took me in such a dark place, you know? Yeah, you're right. It uh, it hurt me for a long time. It really did. Yeah. And uh, I felt like I lost a lot of important people in my life. One being, I mean, my boxing coach. You go from seeing him every day for the past five, six years yeah. to not seeing him at all. And he was really, uh, he was kind of like my second father. 
Totally. He, uh, I worked for him. I, I did concrete with him. Wow. He spent hundreds of hours honing my skill and game. And he didn't want me to stop, right? He really wanted me to pursue it. And I had to make a decision at a young age, right? 19, 20 years old. Do I want to do this? And I love going to the gym, but going to the gym is damaging. Because you go to the gym and you want to help your training partners out, but that is sparring with them all the time, right? And it's like, okay, you're going to pursue your career as a professional fighter, and I'm going to go to university tomorrow. So I had to make that decision. Yeah, wow. As much as I wanted to stay and compete and spar and fight, it was, uh, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make. It really was. Uh, and it was heartbreaking for a long time. I mean, I was uh, apprehensive when it came to fights. I, For the first maybe six months, I was kind of sad. And I would go and support my teammates, and I would go to their fights, and I'd realized, I wish I was in there. And so every time I went to these fights, and I still have this experience. I went to the UFC fight yesterday, and I had the experience of, it's okay, be after the fights, let's go train. It's just, I'm inspired, right? I want to grow. And, and luckily, I still train boxing, but I'm not sparring all the time. I'm not fighting all the time, but I'm trying to grow myself in the category of boxing, and I'm trying to help KB grow as well, and along with a couple other guys I'm training. So I'm still, my hands are still in the pie. I'm still, you know, dabbling in boxing, but now it's more so compartmentalizing my time. So work has this much time. My friendships have this much time. Um, family time, this yeah. much time, and then, you know, training. And, and luckily, I, for the past three or four years, I've had that competitive drive that I felt like was not fulfilled in a weird sense. Yeah. And so after years of you and KB trying to convince me, dude, do jits, do jits, I was scared about my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Since I was 16, I was scared of my ears, and uh, I didn't want them to puff up. Yeah. Finally, I, I pulled the trigger, and six months ago, I, I realized I want to compete. So yeah. the vulnerability of you know, starting something at the most basic and fundamental level and then getting your ass beat. That's that's where I'm at right now, right? And so it's a learning experience and I'm having fun with Jets. So yeah. I feel like I can really pursue Jets in a competitive fashion whilst keeping my, you know, my brain in shape. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not no, taking shots anymore. True. That's a but good it's, point. It's yeah. a one-to-one. -one. Pretty much answered what was already on my mind that I really was really curious about is like wondering what Jets does for you that boxing didn't. And like kind of add to your point where you can spar in Jets, yeah. simulate rules every day you can do it every day without hurting this. Exactly. Without affecting the brain. Yeah. Right? Which is a beautiful thing. And I want to know, like, just out of curiosity, because this relates to what I was already wanting to ask you was, in boxing, in order to really get better, you have to spar. Yeah. I think we could argue that. But do you feel like you have to spar as often as you needed to from, from your gym and your coach's perspective? Because you were saying a lot, like, hey, you're going in there, like... You didn't want to affect the brain so much because there was so much sparring happening. Yeah. Like, do you feel like in boxing there needs to be that much sparring to get better? Yeah, I mean, that's a subject, subjective question, right? So a different coach will answer differently. Some guys spar all the time. But, I mean, when you start something, especially I can relate this to jiu-jitsu because I'm doing it right now, yeah. you got to spar all the time. you got to roll, you got to roll, you got to roll. you got to really build yourself up to being good. Once you're really good, you still got to roll, but now it's a controlled roll. And so that relates to boxing. So initially, when you start boxing, and if you want to compete, you've got to spar. You really have to spar. But it's very important finding the guys that are really good training partners, where you're not going balls to the wall trying to hurt each other. So you have to let go of your ego in the gym. And that takes a lot, especially when you're starting a new sport and you want to prove yourself. And you want to be that alpha. Yeah. You want to do well. Absolutely. You don't want to get hit. So, I mean, initially, it took me a long time to realize that you give what you get. And that can relate into many different facets of life. 
So, I mean, if you're if you're going hard against your training partner, he's going to go hard back. Yeah. You know, perhaps you're sparring a guy that's a professional who's been doing it for 15 years yeah. and you want to prove a point. If you hit him hard, you're going to get 10, 15 shots landed back at you. So I had to learn that at a young age. And as you progress and get better at a sport, the less you need the sparring. You still need the sparring, but you can kind of lower the intensity to simulate a fight where you're not trying to hurt your training partners. And I think yeah. it got to a point where... Uh, perhaps I, I don't think I was sparring too much because my mentality from being 15 to being 22 was hit and not get hit. Yeah. I didn't like to go in wars. I really liked to, to make guys miss, yeah. right? Because I was scared of the consequences getting, yeah. of getting hit. Yeah. And that really drove me to be a better fighter. Nice. Yeah, wow. Which comes with a lot of other things that you need to be aware of, right? Moving that head, you know, yeah. get, get in, get out, <laughs> right? Doing all the things in which you're really good at doing. And it just speaks volumes. I love how you kind of related that to life in general, right? Is uh, I've been hearing this a lot lately because it's being preached in my head and, uh, you know, from all the influencers I have, my friends, you know, Gug and my parents is like, you know, you, you, you work, you work extremely hard at something, but instead of working hard, work smart. Yeah. Right. And then even same thing you talk about with fighting. Don't, don't fight hard. Don't, don't fight to like try and kill the guy's face off. Cause he, just, you said you give what you get. The person's going to bring that same energy back, but you fight smart. Right, and uh, as you said, you talked about like an experience level. As you get more experience, you don't feel the need to spar almost as, as hard as you did before. Now it's, it's almost playful. In a sense, you're like, okay, hey, I'm gonna go in there and my goal is to just maybe, let's see if I can land 50 jabs on this guy. That's it. We're sparring, he, he might not know psychologically that all I'm gonna try and do is hit him with the jab, but I'm gonna work on that. And same thing with rolling, right? It's like, okay, hey, well, this past week, we've been working guard passes. I'm gonna try and pass this guard. That's yeah. my goal. If yeah. I can pass the guard, that's a small little win in my head. And okay, we'll go with whatever we end up doing. But it's when you focus it in, focus in on one specific thing, right? Like we, we were never taught that in school. We, we were, we were taught to math, science, social studies, <laughs> LA, gym. You gotta, you gotta do good in all of them all at the same time. Right? I mean, we learn as we get older, that's innately impossible. I think that's why there's such a theme now. People saying, well, I'm trying to balance my life. Well, how do you do it? Yeah. What's a million dollar answer? Because it's like, we grew up all our life trying to balance so many things, but at the end of the day, what happened? We either got really good at one thing, because guess what? We put all of our energy into it. People are like, why are you so good at it? So but you're going home, that was the one thing that they probably studied, or really just remotely put that energy into, right? Or you have the guy who's like, okay, be B minus in everything, because there's <laughs> equal amount of tension in it all. Yeah. It's really innately impossible to be a master at it all. That's why this whole thing that I really, you could say, uh, just live with is like that whole like jack of all trades master of none it's like I, I always want to be like semi good at everything but I learned along the way I had to cut certain things off right like there's that kind of like to your point where like you looked at the drawing board you're like hey well I can't fight in boxing anymore because I have to focus on this other thing yeah exactly yeah right? yeah so Great. many people you know get excited about that saying right like a man of all trades a master of none people take that with pride but I think nowadays people uh they want to balance their life with too many activities and then they don't really excel in any one of those activities and then they start quitting because they're not seeing the growth that they expected yeah so I think nowadays I'm learning this too and I'm really starting to learn this with work and know graduating university actually being an, uh, an accounting student i learned that right like i had to study a lot to do well and so that's what i did and so now translating that to my sporting life and my work life yeah, yeah i really have to focus on one or two things and i have to make those propel and, and succeed and Love. instead of you know having a million different things and yeah. uh, trying to balance all those plates and then failing on all of them no so. exactly and i agree man that's like me when i think in my head i'm like okay this week 
I've got to get this, 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 and 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 this. Yeah, oh, you're crazy with it. But then it's like, okay, well, why not? I see that there's maybe these two, three things I got to work on this week. And I got, man, I'm like, I'm preaching to the choir here. Like, I know I got to work on it. And it's like, this week, I got to get up when my alarm clock rings. I'm not going to snooze it. And that's what I'm going to work on this week. That's like outside of the career and everything. This is my life in general. I'm going to work on that. And you work on it for like a whole week, every day, 8 a.m. Get up right when the alarm clock rings. And those are just those small little wins. Instead of trying to tell yourself, okay, I've got to get up on that too. And I got to make sure I do the dishes before I leave the home. I'm going to make sure, you know, yeah. you have enough time for breakfast. It's like, then it seems so clouded, right? So I think just to relate to like, okay, you focus on one move. Yeah. So finish and sparring. Same thing with life. You focus on that one specific activity until you get it done. And minimize that activity. So if you want to wake up at perhaps five in the morning, but you know, your regiment is you wake up at eight in the morning. Don't wake up tomorrow and it's five in the morning, you had three hours of sleep and you hate your life, yeah, right? Exactly. So right? minimize the win, right? So push the goal and the envelope by 5%. Yeah. So perhaps you wake up at eight, tomorrow wake up at 7.50 yeah. and then bring it all the way down to 5 a.m. And KB's doing that right now. So, yeah, yeah, so uh, that's something oh. he succeeded at, right? Yeah. And uh, you can't push yourself to succeed at an increment of 100%. They have to be really small wins. Yeah. Uh, to really build yourself exponentially. Yeah. So it takes time. And people don't really, people are always, what I realized, people are always looking for that quick win to victory or how to make a million dollars in a week, yeah, right? Or, so people are trying to... Sign up today. Yeah, no kidding. And, and people actually believe this concept. And sometimes it works, but you've got to build yourself up in small increments to get to the big goal. Yeah. So everything's fast track nowadays, but you've got to callous your mind with the small victories. So 5%, 10% a day, maybe 1% a day, right? All the way up until 100%. And then 100% is not the finish line. You're still growing. So that's something I've been trying to implement. And waking up in the morning, right? Like that's, I'm working on that now too. So yeah. it's funny, it's I'm funny to see. Me neither. I like, I like staying up at nights, yeah, but yeah. I like sleeping at the same time. I'm good. So. I got rid of that habit. I, Did you? I, I used to night <laughs> too, man. Now I'm like, okay, I gotta go to bed. Just gotta yeah. lights out, close the eyes, right? I wanna, I want to transition into our, I think our last favorite topic I had in mind was uh, what for you defines a good friendship, right? Like I really wanted to dig deep on that because I feel like now there's no there's no textbook definition of what a good friendship looks like, especially in this digital era we live in now, right? Like it's 2019 and I really want to know based off of your, let's call it criteria, like what checks off the list of items in your mind of what makes a good friend? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I think there's... Being, you know, someone in, you know, you're, you're in your 20s, you're male, yeah. you're you're somebody who clearly has, you know, this trajectory planned out in your head of what success looks like. And you, you, you I know, just outside of even just being on a podcast, your friend, I know you care about surrounding yourself around the right people. But like for you, what are those qualifications look like? What, is, what makes a good friend? I think one, uh, you got to be reciprocal. I think two, you've got to be vulnerable. I think three, you've got to be honest. And four, you got to put that time in, right? Like not all friendships and relationships are easy, right? Like we've had plenty of hiccups, right? But we all, every single time we come back to our baseline and then we grow from it. So I think those three or four factors are probably the most important things. Um, Just that trust level, right? If you're lying to me or if you're not helping me grow, then what are we doing, right? Like, I feel like a lot of times with our friendships, and I think many people can relate that, you know, we get stagnant and uh, we develop a comfort level with people. We develop a comfort level in our lifetime. We have a regimen, we have a schedule, 
And that's what we do every single day, at least in my perspective, and I know from your perspective, you wanna grow. I wanna grow, and I think we harvest our energy together and we grow together, right? So if, if I'm kinda of falling behind, you're gonna pick me up. But if you're falling behind all the time, for example, and you're not catching up, and I'm trying to help you and give you the, the resources to change, and you're still in that same spot, then you're kinda of holding me back too then. Cause my time can be, you know, utilized in different facets of my life where I'm growing personally, or I could spend it with somebody else that's trying to grow them, themselves as well. So I think growth is probably the most important thing um, with, I mean, the variables of being honest and being, uh, gotta be mutual. I call you all the time. You call me back, right? You call me, maybe I'm working. I don't answer. Yeah. I make, I make it a priority to text you, to call you back. Right. Cause what if you need something? What if you want to say what's up, right? Exactly. So, I, what do you just need a friend? <laughs> exactly, right? So, it's uh, you got to stay in touch too. So yeah. sometimes, I, we all have friends and acquaintances that perhaps we love, but we don't see them for two, three, four years. Yeah, it's great to see them, but in order to maintain that relationship, you've and we've spoke about this plenty of times. I got to know what you do, like what you're doing in this past week, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, what's your, what's your week been like, man? Yeah. Right? Tell me about exactly. it. Right? So, yeah. touching base is very important as well. But how about yourself? Like, what do you think is very important? I, you know what? I, I like both, to be honest. I, by both, I mean just based off what you said. Like, I find there's certain friends I have where, like, with us, we're, we're, on, we're on, we know about what the week to week kind of looks like, and we, we keep each other updated. There's certain friends I have where, okay, I haven't talked to them for a month or two, but I know when I see them in person, we're going to get the high level, right? We're going to hear about what happened in one another's life, right? But I love your I love your take on honesty and, and being reciprocal, right? I feel like a friendship, just like relationship, it's a two-way street, right? It's not a two-way street of like, oh, you gave me this, I'm going to make sure I give you that. It's not like that. Yeah. But it's like, hey, like, I could think of certain things in my head where I'm like, yeah, you know what? I feel like I've taught Danny this, this, and this, and I feel like he's taught me this, this, and this over the time we've spent in one another's lives, right? Just like a relationship. I feel like relationships, friendships and family all of that at any point in time can, can go stagnant to your point like like this right you can reach that awkward moment of like okay so like we've just been doing the same thing <laughs> like what's what the hell's new to this you know but that's the beautiful part about having friendships and any of these let's say entities we talk about is being comfortable with change definitely right? yeah like i find uh I've heard it recently on, I saw it on Instagram, and it was kind of like, oh, like, one of the quotes I read, but I actually read it and I internalized it, I'm like, this kind of makes sense. And it said, um, it was talking about relationship, but it relates to friendships. It's like, you will see, you'll date somebody, or you'll be friendships with someone and see probably over five versions of them along the way, easily. And by versions, I mean like, they're a whole different person now. And I find we need to come to acceptance of that, right? Like, you could be friends with someone at 18, like, we know each other when we're like 15. Yeah. 15-year-old Kenny and Danny were worlds different from who we are now. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, similar values, but, you know, what we were up to then compared to what we're up to now, right? Like, even both of us now having more similarities as we're, you know, going through life and being able to understand where one another were and are coming from. I think that's the beauty of it, right? It's like, I also argue that, okay, even if they're your friend, even though they haven't lived through the experience yet, when they do, there'll be a lot of oh and ah moments. Yeah, no kidding. Right? Like, I've had that with friendships. Yeah. Right? I have that in, 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 even in family and relationships. Where it's like, oh, because I lived this, now I get what it was like when you were trying to explain something. Yeah. Right? So it's that level of uh, honesty, honestly. And I feel like, you know when they say, like, you gotta, when someone has a chip on their shoulders, you kind of gotta look at it, like, from their perspective. It's so easy to say, put yourself in that person's shoes. But when you do, you're kind of like, oh, okay, that's what it was. 
Yeah, no kidding. Right? Another thing I think is what activities you guys share, right? I yeah. think that's very important because, you know, your time's allocated towards the activities you do. And so if me and you share, you know, five commonalities of different activities we do, then that's more time together of growing together, right? So some people, they completely have a different lifestyle. And perhaps, like you said, you don't see them for two, three months, but they're still, the love's still there, right? Yeah. You connect with them as soon as you see them. And it's like the last time you'd seen them. But me and you share so many similarities in the sense that we do jets, right? We're yeah, business-minded yeah. people. And so many different activities in our life relate. Yeah. And uh, another thing is that our families connect. Yeah. yeah. So there's that, uh, that broad term of friendship. And your family's trustworthy. My family's trustworthy. Yeah, and they've, like they've connected, right, from our, from our relationship. And oh, yeah. you've introduced me to many people. And I'm sure I've intru- introduced you to plenty of people, too. So. Yeah. Wow, that strikes a chord. That's only because you know what it makes you think of? It makes you think of two things. I have to say two things, so don't forget it. <laughs> the first thing is I can go to your house, whether you're there or not, honestly, I can kick it with your dad. Same thing with your mom. I can sit down with them and we can talk. Like, we're talking like friends. There's yeah. obviously that huge respect factor. I know they're your parents, so I almost feel like an aunt and uncle. But the fact that who brought you into this world is who I can kick it with, it again, it checks off the list. It's like, I better get along with them because they created you, right? Like yeah, no they, they instilled those values at a young age. And I find, uh, I don't know, I, I shouldn't be saying, oh, not many people have that, but it'd be interesting to know for other people if they share that same experience. I'd love to ask that when your podcast goes live. And uh, second thing you said is like the activity thing. That's huge for me, man. If I think about the friendships that I had that were just as close as ours at a point in my life, well, ultimately I find is no longer the hook that keeps it as strong mm. is because they're worlds apart from activities I do in my day to day. Yeah. Right? They're not training jujitsu. They don't have that same, like, business drive, <laughs> right? Like the things that I love doing. And maybe if they're into hockey or whatever it is, it's just we still respect each other, but we, we damn well know that, that that connection is strong. Yeah, it's right? beautiful. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's That's awesome. cool, man. I like that. Key highlights. See? If you want to learn how to make a good friend, you go to Danny's write a book about it. <laughs> Let's uh, put you on the hot seat, man. So this is a fun little segment we have on the show where we, we ask like hot fire questions. Nice. So it's like you got to answer quick. Uh, there's really, <laughs> there's not necessarily any like conversation around it. It's just yeah. go, you shoot, you answer, whatever comes top of mind. This is a new second floor segment. So I'm just being introduced on the spot here. Let's do it. <laughs> no, this is actually what we do towards the end of the show. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> now we know how far Danny gets. Like, oh, uh, we do it towards the end. But nice. Okay. Let's no do worries. it. And we've been doing it lately more on our uh Latest episode. So we'll we'll shoot the fire here. Okay? Let's do it. Hot seat round. Question number one. Who are you... Who's like your idol, dead or alive? Somebody who like, oh, you love that person. Uh, pop, like pop culturally? Anybody. Anybody. Okay, I'll, I'll say it from like a media standpoint. Tupac. Tupac. I love Tupac. Wait, yeah, I love Tupac. If you could be famous for anything, you could be famous like the whole world knows you, like Beyonce, Jay-Z type status. All right. Who would you be famous for? Helping people out. Helping people out. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Helping people out. Nice. So like a philanthropic venture. Yeah. Civil rights. Civil rights. Yeah. Okay, done deal. Civil rights. We picked it out. I'm an activist. What is the best book you would recommend every single person reads? I have two. So one book, Kenny put me on. It's called Chant Around. One of the most incredible books I've ever read. Uh, another one is A Life by Muhammad Ali. I just finished that. Uh, the third, I guess, I'll add a third. I'm on it right now. Is David Goggins' book? It's yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. So, 
I, I take influence from all these books and I kind of put it into my life. And you're a reader, see? So that just shows, if you have three recommendations, that's what we know, like that, <laughs> that, that, this guy reads. All right, next question. If you could live anywhere in the world, live anywhere, where would you live? Here. Edmonton? Here. Oh, nice, here. why Edmonton? I think Any, uh, here, yeah. So luckily I've been fortunate enough to travel I've been to many different places, luckily, and me and you shared many experiences in Europe and I think five or six different countries. Yeah. I think we both agreed that the people here, sure, you know, winters are shitty and the, the summers are filled with rain and mosquitoes, but the people here, I think, are, are amazing, right? I think the people here are the most kind people in the world. And I'm not saying Alberta, I'm saying Edmonton, because Calgary is a little different. The culture in Calgary is different. So Edmonton, I think, is that perfect cocktail between uh, different perspectives, uh, different nationalities, different ethnic be beliefs coming all together in one and really creating this multinational crockpot. I like that. Yeah. That's nice. Next question. Do you have any superpower? What superpowers do you have? Flying. Flying? Love to fly. Yeah, I like that. Love to fly. <laughs> uh, would you rather never be able to eat again or never be able to sleep? Oh, that's a good one. Choose one. Sleep. Okay. Let's get rid of the sleep. Keep the know. food, no keep sleeping. The, yeah, if I'm popping a pill, let's keep me up all the time. Let's do it. I love that. Yeah. All right, last question, Danny. Final one. We ask everybody this. Okay. Okay. You might not know. <laughs> so <laughs> let's say, you know, you brought you got brought to the Second Floor Podcast. Right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we believe that bringing someone on this show, they have something to give to our audience. They, you know, they impede this feeling of uh, just being just a step above the you know ground level platform sure somebody who is constantly thinking about that growth mindset constantly thinking about you know how they're gonna be another step above constantly along the way right so they're indoctrinating that second floor mindset so for you I want to know what is it that that you bring forward that gives you that second floor mindset or even even better how do you define being on the second floor metaphorically Right? Like, how do you view being on the second Enthusiasm. Openness. Willing to grow. Yeah. Willing to be vulnerable. Willing to learn. See, like, metaphorically, this is, you know, the second floor podcast, but check that view out. We're on the 19th floor. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and metaphorically, you were on a second floor when you started, right? You're yeah. in an office building on the second floor. Sure. And now we are, uh, we're on the 19th floor. So growth, progression. I like that. We should change it to 19th floor. Well, what if you move to like the 30th floor, right? So then we'll create a different podcast called 30th floor. Do it, man. Like yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to ask you a question, actually. Please, so yes. Wow, anything. I want to ask you, what's been the biggest challenge of the second floor? What's been that, the thing that's challenged you the most? That's a question. <sighs> biggest challenge. You know what, I find, you know what, now that we've been in it for, like we're in it now, like it's past our six month mark, we're doing episodes, you know, at least bi-weekly. My biggest challenge is ensuring that I am keeping every episode different from the previews. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That, yeah. that, that really, I spend time thinking about that. When I come on here, I don't, I don't sit there with like a list of questions that I already have planned to ask you. I really don't. I have an idea. I think it's fair enough. I have like, okay, there's two, three, four topics. I want to stick to that with Danny because I know he can shine some light to this and give some knowledge to people and I can learn more about him. 
But the challenge is ensuring that it feels like a new episode. Okay. And it would honestly be the viewer's perspective, or even if I spent time and listened to every single one back to back, to ensure that we're not too much repeating ourselves. Yeah. So my biggest challenge is sometimes I think about, okay, the adversities I uh, have you know, conquered in my life or have faced, did I mention it too many times? Is it something where an audience member is like, okay, well, I already heard like, anyone through that. You know, because I try and do that because sometimes the, the guests themselves, they don't know that that happened, so I, I find a way to relate with them. So you could say my challenge really is that. It's like just ensuring that there's this new freshness to the product, this, the, the, the quality in the episode will bring you home there. And each person who's been on the store since day one still get a little new snippet of me, really. Yeah. I, I, you know, there's still so much more to me to live. And that's why another challenge is this, right? Over the night, talk about it. We're like, we're no Joe Rogan here. We're no, we're no like New York's best time selling author who decided to start the podcast. Yeah. We're still young. Yeah. We're still forming our own opinions, right? And I think that's another thing that scares me is, to be honest, even to this day when I look at my first episode, I'm like, man, I'm like, I already feel like there's been some sort of growth even in my own way of hosting and as a person. And I know along the way, perspective is going to change. It's exactly. a typical thing of like people whipping out a video of Trump <laughs> 10 years ago and be like, you said this 10 years ago. Now you're saying something different. Well, no shit. You know, that, that's 10 years of, if you want to call it growth or just perspective change. You're not going to have the same opinion. So that's another challenge where I understand. Yes. My perspective, my opinions are going to continuously change along the way, but I want to embrace it. I think that's a fair part. It would be silly if I told you, well, I love challenges. You know, there's a million more, but I feel like those two are really what uh, helps me. So that, that really, I lose sleep over that. That's beautiful. I mean, on your first point, to rebuttal that, you tell stories, right? You're like a super authentic guy. So over the years of our relationship, you've probably told me one of the same stories 500 times. <laughs> but every single time you say it's different, right? It has your own flair to it. So yeah. I sit there and listen, listen every single time. I'm not like, yo, Kenny, bro, I heard this story. <laughs> Shut it. 610th time, man. Come on. Yeah. So you do a, a really good job at elaborating and being authentic with your story. So sure. at least from my perspective, I really don't get sick of them. I think they're hilarious. I, <laughs> whether it's a serious story, uh, whether it's a funny story. Yeah. It, the story fundamentally is always the same, but you say it in a different way every single time. So I like that. keep it up. I don't think that's an issue that's at all. Premise. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. For our audience members, for anyone who's listening to this, how can they find you? How can they get a hold of Danny Zar? Uh, on social media, DZAR, D-Z-A-H-R. Uh, Carl West, 780-612-9575. If you are in the market looking for a vehicle, whether it's used, whether it's brand new, or perhaps you know somebody in the market looking for a vehicle, love to give you a, a, refer, a referral check. So <laughs> that's a, a good time to highlight that. Um, and if you have any questions, please reach out and ask. I'd love to talk to people who are watching right now. And if they want to pick my brain or if they want to connect, give me a shout. Hit me up. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. That's Daniel Zar in a nutshell. Thank Thanks, you, Kenny. Thanks for having me. Bro. No worries, man. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Second Floor Podcast. This episode was actually brought to you by LuxMarket.com. If you feel like you enjoyed this episode, please go on iTunes Podcast, give us a review, let us know what you think, and feel free to share this with a friend who you also believe would enjoy the episode.